Uh, let's ask... Uh, I should say before I pray, though, that those of you who have the transcript, uh, the beginning is a little different. What, I'm, what I will say will be a little different from what's written uh, because I kept on thinking about it. Um, let's pray and ask God. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words are lamp to our feet and a light to our path, light in darkness. Bring us to know you, the true and living God, and bring us to know the life uh, of genuine human flourishing in your world. Uh, help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and to know its encouragement and to conform our beliefs and our actions to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, the vote's in. Of the 80% of eligible voters who voted, 61.6 voted yes. Approving a change uh, to the definition of marriage in civil law to remove reference to marriage as being between a man and a woman so that the marriage of same-sex couples could be facilitated. So 61.6 voted yes and 38.4% uh, voted no. Now I suspect that amongst us there may have been a whole range of emotional reactions uh, to that announcement. Uh, some probably just, well please, just over it, relieved that it had finished. Some perhaps a, a moment of anxious uh, fearfulness, fear for what this might mean for yourself or for your children, for employment or schooling. And there's no surprise there because much of the No campaign has actually been focused on negative potential consequences, you know, restrictions of liberty and interference in the nurture of our children. So some of you might have felt a touch of fearful anxiety. Others perhaps had a, a flash of anger at what you see as people driving destructive changes in our society. And some, like me, might have just felt sad. Sad not for myself, but for Australia. Uh, sad because I know God forbids things for our good, and there will, in the end, only be grief where doing what he forbids is enabled. Uh, sadness at the confusion, this official endorsement, of the legitimacy of same-sex relationships will bring to individuals and families. Sadness at the determination of so many not to give our good creator the honour he deserves. And yes, sadness at the heavy hand of judgement on us as I see God giving us up to our idolatrous folly. I, I suspect there are a whole range of emotional responses uh, to that announcement. Uh, but this morning I want to engage with you about how we should think about and respond to the conduct of the plebiscite and its outcome. Because it was an unusual experience for many of us, wasn't it? Prolonged public debate on such a polarising issue that touches on deeply held personal beliefs and an outcome, a, an outcome which represents a departure from the understanding of marriage we've had in the past, uh, a departure from Scripture's understanding of marriage as a permanent and exclusive lifelong relationship of a man and a woman to each other for the purposes of companionship and the begetting and nurture of children.
a departure from an understanding of marriage as the gift of our Creator God. So this morning, how we think about and respond to the conduct of the plebiscite and its outcome. And I want to talk to you about uh, four things principally. Firstly, the experience of pressure. Second, the reasons we have for thankfulness uh, for the plebiscite. Thirdly, the things we always need to remember as our society moves in one direction. And fourthly, our continuing response. <coughs> now, for many of us, the experience of the plebiscite has been an experience of pressure. You know, the pressure of being the odd one out, the pressure of encountering hostility to our beliefs, or the pressure to reconsider and change our view of marriage. Now, if you read your whole Bible, well, the existence of that pressure shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Jesus warned us of the possibility that we would be hated by the world for following him that people would revile us for being his disciples. But because pressure can be unsettling, I want to talk about one effect of that pressure and one contributor to that hostility to help you understand it. So one effect of that pressure has been, if, if not in your own life, probably in the lives of believers you know, one effect of that pressure has been to cause people to reconsider what the Bible says about, say, uh, sexual morality and whether the Bible is a, a reliable guide to living. You see, this is the pressure of having an unexamined belief brought under critical scrutiny. So you'd always grown up believing what the Bible teaches, that marriage is between a man and a woman. You've just accepted it. You haven't given much thought of it, thought about it. And then all of a sudden, it's come under criticism. And it's suggested that holding to that is actually a cause of offence to many. Now, now that kind of uh, pressure can throw you into a spin. You know, have I understood it? Oh, am I right to believe it? Is the Bible still true and reliable? Especially where there are many people who call themselves Christians who will want to tell you that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, that actually it's not a reliable guide, we've moved on, we have a better understanding of psychology. Now, <coughs> if that's you, well, I hope you'll come and uh, talk to me about that because we have worked through the passages relating to same-sex sexual activity in the winter teaching series and we touched on them again when we started uh, Romans 1 at the beginning of last year, uh, if that's you. Or, or can I recommend to you Kevin DeYoung's book, which I've already recommended on uh, same-sex sexual activity. It's a very good book and it's a good book you could give to friends who have found their beliefs challenged. But that's, in a sense, what pressure does. And this experience is a warning to us that to withstand pressure, to hold fast to what we believe, we actually need to know what we believe and why. And we need to know and be sure about, have conviction about, why we think scripture is a reliable and sound guide to life. Always true, always trustworthy. And yes, we need to know that we are reading it in the right way, reading it as 
God-given. So it's a warning for us. As I say, if, if, that's, if, if the pressure's caused you to reconsider those things or have questions about those things, please come and talk to me. But you should take it as a warning to make sure you know and understand why you believe, particularly why you believe Scripture to be God's word, something we actually deal with in the Belonging to Bundy course. And you need to know that because there will be pressure. There'll just be continuing pressure in our society and some of that pressure will be hostile because many in our society have actually abandoned any objective basis to morality and now see all morality as subjective and relative. That is, many believe there's actually no right and wrong external to ourselves and true for all, to which all need to conform. Because they've rejected that, they actually have come to see a person's morality as something you choose. You choose to have it. And you might choose to have it for all sorts of reasons, including psychological ones or your personal background or upbringing. And so, for example, if you have a morality that says same-sex sexual activity is wrong, for people who've embraced the idea of a subjective morality, you have that view because you have chosen it, because you want to believe that same-sex sexual activity is wrong. And then they go on and think, what kind of person would choose to deny someone's sexual expression, especially where our society thinks our humanity is denied, where we're not allowed sexual expression? They say, what kind of person would do that? And then they think, well, actually, only someone with deep-seated fears about same-sex sexual activity, which is why you find yourself being accused of being a homophobe. Oh, and they ask, what kind of person would choose a morality that would deny someone the opportunity for a satisfying, loving relationship? Because they disapprove of a certain kind of sexual activity. And, well, they answer that. An unkind person would choose that. Well, we might then, uh, believers, try and defend ourselves by saying, we're not choosing that morality. It's given to us by God for our good. But if the person you're talking to has already decided that God is a fiction, and they will have if they believe morality is subjective, your response just increases their sense of your unkindness. For them, you are clinging to your invention of God to oppress another person who is different from you because you hold these deep-seated psychological concerns about it. And so they treat you as unkind and homophobic and they don't hear what you say about right and wrong. You need to understand that so that the discussion you have with them is not about this piece of morality or that piece of morality, but about why you believe there is an objective morality that tells you, well, things you may not like, want to hear that governs your actions even when you have to deny yourself to live that way. That is, you need to be talking about the existence of a real and true God who can be known. Well, the plebiscite's been an experience of pressure. 
a taste, in a sense, of the impact of pressure, you should understand that pressure and prepare yourselves for more. Secondly, as Philip Jensen now, uh, this is a completely dismaying slide containing no information you can discern, but it is in the outline. Okay, I didn't realise that when I was giving this talk this morning, I was completely overwhelmed with shame, but because uh, I've done it yet again, every time I do this it comes up blue, but it is in the outline. Good. Well, secondly, as Philip Jensen observed in his initial response, uh, the plebiscite has actually given us a lot to be thankful for, and that's always good, isn't it, to know you've got things to be thankful for. The first thing we have to be thankful for, he said, is that we live in a democracy where issues that divide our nation are settled by the peaceful process of majority rule and minority acceptance of that outcome. And that is something to be thankful for, and he lists a number of other things we can be thankful for. It's a good article. You know, we can be thankful for generally respectful debate. You can be thankful for a clear result, and we can be thankful for that. And also that the minority, we had the opportunity to have our concerns noted. You can be thankful that in the polling that took place there's an indication that many more are concerned to preserve freedom of speech and religion. Oh, and yes, you can be thankful that the plebiscites created an awareness of the widening gulf between Christians and nominal Christians. That it actually helps us see the character and challenge of living the distinctive lives of Jesus' followers in our society. And it's also clarified for us the magnitude of the work that we need to do to persuade society about God's will and its goodness. So as you think about the plebiscites, worth reflecting on what you have to be thankful for. But also, as you think about the plebiscite and uh, its result, we need to remind ourselves of those things that we should always remember uh, when we're thinking about our lives and our society. And the first thing we need to remember is the truth of the gospel. The gospel, that Christ has died for our sins, been buried and been raised by God on the third day is not a man-made philosophy. It's a proclamation of what God has done in Christ. And these are events that we are proclaiming, not ideas. And they're events that are unambiguous. Dead is dead. It is not a matter of degrees. You can't be 50% dead. 75, you can't be dead is dead. It's a state absolutely different from a life. And alive from the dead is not something you can sink yourself into. Imagining yourself alive from the dead will not stop you dying and staying dead. Our cemeteries are full of very imaginative people. Raising the dead is something only God can do. And he has done it for Jesus. That is, our faith has an objective foundation, something God has done in the real world. It's a real event because our God is real. He is not a fiction. He acts and he speaks. So being a Christian is not a matter of just choosing what you would like to believe, but responding to a God who has made himself known by doing something, 
sending his son into the world to die and rise and sending his gospel into the world. And so Christian morality, you know, what we understand as the right way to live is also not a matter of deciding for ourselves what we would like to think of as right and wrong. It's actually listening to a real creator and judge. So the world might say morality is subjective and relative, but the gospel is true and it tells you that morality is objective. There is a moral order to the universe sustained by the true and living God. The second thing we have to remember is that Jesus is Lord. Now, God is the Lord of history. He directs all things to his appointed end, and we know what that end is. It's to unite all things under Christ. It's to exalt Jesus over all so that every knee bows to him. And God uses all things to further that end. He rules over the details. We see that in Jesus' crucifixion and rising. So we know he rules over how people vote. He rules over the outcome of plebiscites. But actually I want to say more. Jesus is Lord now. All authority in heaven and earth is his. He rules history now. That's why I had Revelation 5 read. You see, Revelation tells us it's the lamb at the centre of the throne who is worthy and alone worthy to undo the seals. That is, Jesus alone is worthy to determine what happens and when it happens in history. Jesus rules over history, God bringing to pass his purpose of judging the wicked, rescuing his people to the new heaven and earth and exalting his son. And Jesus, the Lord, loves his faithful people. He is determined that they will share in his glorious future and are fit to share in his glorious future. We are close to his heart. So we have to remember that Jesus is Lord and he is working things out always for the best for his people whom he is determined will come and share life and glory with him. The third thing we have to remember is that the good of the gospel has not changed. Now the blokes who came and heard uh, Colin sing uh, Saturday a week ago were reminded really that all our lives share a common trajectory. Short or long, they end in death. But not just death, after death comes the judgment. But the gospel says Jesus saves and only Jesus saves. There is no other name. And that salvation is rich. If you uh, want to be reminded of its richness, read through Romans 5, 1 to 11 again. Let me remind you of, of the things you'll encounter there. It says that trusting Jesus, we are justified. That is, we'll be reckoned right by God in his judgment. We have nothing to fear. 
trusting Jesus. We have peace with God now. We can always come near to him, the eternal creator, for grace and help in our need. In fact, it says we stand in his grace, trusting Jesus, not because of our goodness or whatever we have done. We are assured that God looks upon us favourably and will always do that for Jesus' sake. Oh, trusting Jesus, we have hope of the glory of God. Now that is hope of eternal life, but life of a certain kind where we actually know God, where we see his face, where we can enjoy his goodness to the full. Oh, trusting Jesus, it says God's love has been poured into our hearts. Even now we can know we are loved by the eternal God who is thoroughly good. Trusting Jesus, we are saved from his wrath. We are reconciled to him. The gospel is good. It is unimaginably good, isn't it? It's the story of a, a God who seeks the lost, who pardons sin, who loves rebels so much he gives his son to save them. It is a good story and the gospel brings good. We should never be made to doubt that. It's a good known now, but actually it will bring us to a life that so far transcends our present experience that we're actually incapable of imagining how good it will be. We are just not deep enough. The gospel is good. And that brings us to the next point. The Jesus who is the saviour is worth all or he is nothing. Jesus has always been clear about what is at stake in following him. Loyalty to him will bring division. Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, he said. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You see, Jesus is clear. He is worth all. Relationship with him is more important than any other relationship. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In fact, we have to love him by doing what he says and know that that is more important than conforming to the wish of any other, even the closest family member. In fact, he says he is worth giving up our lives for. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In fact, he says the only way to life is giving up our lives for him. Whoever finds their life will lose it. That is, whoever just lives for themselves and whoever loses their life for my sake, who takes up their cross and follows me, will find it. Jesus is worth all, or in his eyes, nothing. And some of us will feel the pressure of the need to choose Jesus more acutely than others. You know, when members of our family demand that you love them more than you love Jesus by approving of their same-sex sexual relationship, you'll feel the pressure. You know, and while seeking the best you can to love them, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't approve what God condemns. And you will have to decide. Is being loyal to Jesus, and that means being loyal to his word, worth all? Worth risking that relationship because you cannot relate to them on their terms. We'll all have to be clear, won't we? Sooner or later, we've got to settle in our minds that Jesus is worth all. He is the only saviour, the only way to life. Worth all or nothing. Fifthly, the commission to make disciples has not changed and it has not got harder. God's agenda is still that Jesus' gospel be preached to all and the disciples are made of all nations. Now, has that task got harder because of this decision? Or because a majority now disagree with the Bible's teaching on sexual morality? Has making disciples got harder? Well, no. As Mark Deaver observed, you've always been preaching in a cemetery. You know, people are dead in their sins until the powerful word of God gives them life. They're not more dead now than they were before and raising the dead has not become harder because of the result of some plebiscite. You know, this was always impossible for us and always possible for God. Hasn't got harder. Our society's ensnared in their idolatrous suppression of the truth about God, exactly like Paul's society. The society he speaks of in Romans 1 was ensnared. And God was calling people to himself through the gospel in Paul's day, and he still is today. It's in a society where God was giving people up to their folly in exchanging the truth of God for a lie that the gospel is declared to be the power of God to save. People coming to faith, coming to experience new birth, has never depended upon our cleverness, our social acceptance, our message being in harmony with the dominant worldview. It was always the work of God through his word. And we ought to show that we know that by keeping on preaching God's gospel and he will save his people. And yes, we ought to do it urgently, for people are already experiencing God's wrath, and that's a reminder, isn't it, of the certainty that they will face the day of wrath. So we ought to bring them to hear the powerful gospel of God. Sixthly, the need to love Jesus' people has not changed. That's how Jesus wants his people to be characterised, by our love for one another. And Jesus warned us, Matthew 24, that one of the consequences of increased pressure, uh, the increased pressure of a hostile world, is that love will grow cold. People will withdraw, narrow their sphere of concern, just try and look after those close to us. But that can't be true of us, you see. These changes will mean that there are brothers and sisters who will especially need to be loved. And those experiencing the sadness of seeing old friends change their mind about what God says 
and then separating themselves from them. Oh, those experiencing the grief of divided families who may even be embarrassed to share with their Christian brothers and sisters their grief or fear. Oh, those who, well, who are believers, who are same-sex attracted. They'll need our love. You see, their friends and family may well be saying, why endure the loneliness? Look, it's okay. Society says it's okay. But they're believers and they know it's not. But their non-Christian friends can seem so much more concerned with their emotional well-being, their happiness, than their Christian ones. And it's easy then to drift, to drift into the arms of an affirming culture. These changes will tell you there are believers who will need the love and support of of believers. (coughs) So we have to make sure real love characterises our fellowship. Remember, the story of the sheep and the goats being separated on on the judgement day is a story about whether we have been characterised by love of Jesus' needy people or not. And we can share in the sins of our society a a kind of a proud self-sufficiency. But we mustn't be like that. We mustn't be complacent in love. And so this increased pressure, and we have to just think this through, will mean that actually there's a need for a greater commitment to love, a willingness to pay a greater cost to love, to pay that cost in terms of your time, you know, which is the real gold of our lives, where you're loving enough to alter your schedules, to meet, to encourage with brothers and sisters who are having a hard time, loving enough to include them in your family life, of which we can be so protective, loving enough, oh yes, to keep on teaching the truth to each other. The need to love has not changed. And the need to live godly lives that silence our critics has not changed. To believers living in a hostile and critical culture, the Apostle Peter wrote, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or again, verse 15, It's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There is an obligation on each one of us in a critical culture. What your workmates and neighbours think about the Christian faith depends upon, in large part, it depends upon how you live amongst them. You know, if, if they can measure what the critics of the faith are saying against your genuine kindness, your truthfulness, your reliability, you know, if they see your children being cared for and nurtured, It'll be good for the reputation of Christ and his people. But if all they meet from you is angry ranting or complaining about where society's going, well, they'll draw conclusions too. And this need to live a godly life falls upon each one of us. You know, Paul tells slaves that they have to not talk back. They have to try to be honest, please their masters. Why? so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. The obligation to commend the gospel by how we live falls on each of us, no matter how menial we think our work is or how unimportant we consider ourselves to be. 
We'll either commend the truth of Jesus or turn people off. And yes, the need to respect our government hasn't changed. Paul and Peter both call us to be subject to the governing authorities and to show respect to those who hold oversight over our common life. And that includes our interaction with authority at every level, whether it's teachers or politicians or courts or policemen. We should speak respectfully of our politicians and courts, speak respectfully to them. And we have to keep laws we disagree with if they don't oblige us to directly disobey God. And so if our law says you can't discriminate against someone in the provision of services, then that's the case. There'll always be particular issues to consider and you'll need to think about it carefully, but doctors, for example, don't discriminate against a patient because they got their injury or infection doing something that they disapprove of. They treat them, even while trying to suggest better ways of living in relationship. Now, the same is going to be generally true of other service providers as well, including those notorious florists and bakers. Okay? So you need to think about that and how you can be a good citizen. And the last thing we need to remember is that the responsibility to bring up our children as followers of Jesus has not changed. A society where Christian teaching is out of step with the majority view is a challenge to Christian parents. But being out of step with the sexual morality of the surrounding society is not new. It was the case for believers in the churches Paul planted and the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. The teaching of God's word that sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman has been out of step with the commitment to sexual freedom that our society has embraced for at least 50 years. So we're not faced with a new problem, just another aspect of a continuing problem. And in this society, we are to bring up our children to live the distinctive lives of Jesus' followers, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's a temptation for parents to think that you can make life easier for your children by trying to minimise those differences. And they may well be pressuring you to do so because it's the nature of children to seek their own way. But just remember, you are the parent and you have the responsibility. It's clear these days, isn't it, that to be a Christian is to belong to a distinctive minority. And so you will need to bring them up to be self-conscious members of this minority and to know by experience that living God's way is better because they've seen it in your lives. And to do that, you will have to make choices. Yes, keep the conversation going about what they hear and what they're taught, but be making choices too about what they're hearing and what they're taught. And especially keep them involved in the life of God's people so that it is central to their identity. And if I haven't said it clearly before, though I think I have, that actually means saying no to Sunday sport and things like that. God commands his people to meet together. That's a command. You mustn't teach them that it's not and that it's subject to their own preferences. Meeting with God's people is actually teaching them to order their time according to the will of our Lord and Saviour. And that's important. 
because he is the source of our, all our blessing and he is to be honoured first above all. You don't want to teach them that doing what God says comes secondary to your own subjective enjoyment. And remember this, it is not a burden that God has given your children Christian parents. As if you being a Christian is some kind of disability in their lives that you have to make up for. You being a Christian is God's great gift to your parents. To your children, sorry. Mind you, you being a Christian is also God's great gift to your parents. Something for which they're very thankful for, hopefully. Right? But it is God's great gift to your children. If you keep on being genuinely Christian parents, showing by your own choices that Jesus is your saving Lord to be trusted and obeyed in all things. So we have to keep on bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of God's word. So remembering all that's not changed, how should we live in the light of the coming change to the Marriage Act? Four things. Firstly, prayer. And uh, I know when I say that you think whenever a preacher is short of an application, say prayer because Christians never do it enough and it's good to remind them. But actually one of the sins of our society in which believers share is pride and complacency. Instead of complaining or being anxious, we should shake ourselves out of our complacency. This should shake us out of our complacency so that we become urgent and persevering in prayer because God hears us. Jesus has given us this great privilege. You can't change people's hearts, only God can. So you should pray as you have models of prayer and commands for prayer in the New Testament. So like Paul, you should be praying for people's salvation. As our Lord commands, you should be praying for gospel labourers because there will be people who are wounded by these changes, whose longings will be unsatisfied who will want to hear the truth in God's grace. Oh yes, you should be praying for boldness for gospel preachers. See what Paul asked for, that he would be able to make the gospel known fearlessly. And so pray for the gospel workers you know by name, for the AFES workers, Stephen, Alan, Jess, Pete, Chun Chin, Helen, Pete, Kadem. Right? Pray for them. Pray for the pastors who have gone forth from here. Kevin, Gary, Adam, Cam, Heath, Toby... Pray for them, for Andy and I and Andrew and Kate, pray, Kate and pray for us. Pray for us that we would be fearless and clear in teaching the gospel. And yes, pray for all. Pray for an open door in our society. Pray that those in authority would have their hearts changed to be saved. First of all, we should respond with prayer and then with love for our enemies and for all. We are to be like our Father. We are to love all. And that'll show in the way we speak to and of others. There'll never be slander or bitterness or rancour in our speech. It'll be shown in kindness to all. And yes, it'll be shown in the love we especially show the household of faith, fellow believers in their struggles with their sexuality or their grief at their children or their fears about their work. We must love. And part of love, as I've said already, is meeting whether it's on Sundays or in small groups or informally in each other's homes because it can be increasingly lonely for believers to confess Christ in their workplaces and schools. Prayer, love 
and then preach and share the gospel with urgency and conviction. Because God is giving up your neighbours to their folly for suppressing the truth of God and only the gospel will save them. So yes, equip yourself perhaps to deal with belief blockers like our opposition to same-sex sexual activity. Equip yourself to the extent you can. But don't think you have to have all the answers before you share the gospel. Use your differences to speak of the cause of the difference, what God has done for you in Christ. And speak of the worldview that comes from embracing the gospel, that we have a creator and judge. We have hope in death. Oh, and yes, we know the good of forgiveness. Share the gospel with urgency and support gospel work while you can and abandon a both-and Christianity for a Jesus-only Christianity. That's right. Use the shock of being so clearly in the minority to get over any double-mindedness in your life. You know, where you want to be popular and a Christian, where you want to please your family, oh yes, and to please Jesus, where you want a materially prosperous life, oh yes, and be a follower of Jesus at the same time. Let me say, it cannot be done. You can't have some other God, popularity or wealth, and follow Jesus as well, because Jesus will not settle for that kind of following. He thinks he is worth all or nothing. So it will cost you to follow Jesus in a society that rejects the truth of God. Just recognise that. And then remember, actually Jesus is worth everything, isn't he? He gave himself for you. He loved you enough to do that. He will raise you to eternal life. He even now forgives and keeps you as your good shepherd. He pours out his spirit on you so you have the joy of knowing his love and crying, Abba, Father, in your heart. He is worth everything. Whoever finds their life will lose it. But he's telling the truth. Whoever loses his or her life for Jesus' sake, we'll find it and find it forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that he controls history. And we thank you that he is determined and committed to the welfare and the good of his people to bring them at last to be with him forever. Whatever the changes in our society, we pray in your great mercy that we would trust and follow him and know every day that he is worth all. In Jesus' name, amen.